It's a pleasure to be with you. It's uh, certainly a great privilege, as always, to open God's Word. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. I would like to read for us this morning the first 13 verses. Undoubtedly, a passage of Scripture that is well known to most, if not all of us. Again, that's John chapter 6, the first 13 verses. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. John chapter 6 really isn't a a difficult chapter to to get our minds around. There are basically three scenes, if you like, three sections. Uh, The first scene, we've just read it, the first 13 verses. And here in this section, we have a we have a sign as we make our way through chapters one through 12, Christ's public ministry. John records seven signs performed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, You've already considered three. The first, the Lord Jesus turned water into wine. The second, the Lord Jesus healed the nobleman's son. The third, the Lord Jesus healed that lame man beside the pool of Bethesda. And here we have the fourth sign. The Lord Jesus miraculously feeds this multitude, 5,000 men plus women and children. That's the first scene. Then there's a second section. It builds on the first. And in the second, what we have is a response How do the people respond to such an inexplicable event? How do they respond to seeing five loaves and two fish and this huge multitude fed with so little? What's the reaction? Simply put, they work themselves up into a frenzy. Oh, there's such excitement. There's such enthusiasm. There's such anticipation to such an extent that they're ready to crown Jesus king. Surely this is the prophet of whom the Old Testament points. 
Surely this is the promised one. Surely this is the promised king. Let's make him king. Let's anoint him. Let's crown him right now. And the Lord Jesus knows what they're thinking. And so he simply slips away. But the crowds pursue him. They seek him. They follow him. Because there is this excitement. There is this anticipation. And then we move into a third scene, a third section in which the Lord Jesus confronts the crowds. And there is this discussion. It takes us all the way through to the end of the chapter. And as a matter of fact, there are four parts to this discussion. In the first, the Lord Jesus speaks with the crowds. And he basically points out the fact, hey, the reason you're following me, the reason you're so excited is because I I filled you with the five loaves and two fish. You were materially, physically satisfied, but you've missed the spiritual significance of my coming. And then in the second discussion, he focuses on the Jews, that is the Jewish religious leaders, who have taken exception to his outstanding claims and are beginning to, to question him and to attack him and ridicule him. And then in the third section, he focuses on his disciples, that is, his acknowledged followers. And he has something to say to them. And then finally, as we arrive at the end of the chapter, the Lord Jesus is left alone with the twelve. And he enters into a discussion, a conversation with them. So at the start of the chapter, we have this multitude following him. And by the end of the chapter, the Lord Jesus is alone with the twelve. What has happened? What has happened to all the excitement? What has happened to all of their enthusiasm? Where is this multitude that was at one moment ready to crown Jesus king and at the next moment gone? Where have they gone? What has happened? How do we account for that? Well, that's the road we want to go down next Lord's Day morning. Next Lord's Day, we're going to look at John chapter 6 and we're going to try to account for for the crowd's initial fervor and excitement. And yet after hearing what it was the Lord Jesus is all about, having heard Christ's teaching, having been confronted with Christ's claims, suddenly they're no longer to be seen. They're gone. And that's that's what we're going to consider next Lord's Day. This morning, what I want us to do, however, is focus in on just one single verse. I thought it would be good to focus in on this verse for a number of reasons. The the principal reason is this. It's a verse that is often overlooked, and yet it is a verse that is packed with significance. It is packed with meaning and, and lessons and principles and truths. And the verse I am speaking about contains one simple statement. It is John chapter 6, verse 6, where John writes, He said this. That is, Christ said this to test him, that is, test Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. That is what I want us to meditate upon this morning. The statement raises a couple of obvious questions in my mind anyway. The first question is this, why does does Christ test Philip? What's his purpose? What's the design here? What's the, what's the object, the end in view? Why does he bother to test Philip? Uh, we don't find the answer in the verse. As a matter of fact, we don't find the answer in the immediate context. But we find the answer in the context of John's gospel account as a whole. Now, last week, I pointed out that in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, we have the key that unlocks this book. 
We have the key that unlocks the interpretation of John's gospel account. And there John writes, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, these signs have a purpose. These signs are designed to engender faith in Christ. These signs are are designed to reveal the glory of Christ as the Son of God and in so doing to provoke, to cultivate, to stir, to strengthen faith and trust in Him. Well, Philip has witnessed three signs. Philip's been there. Philip saw the Lord Jesus turn water into wine. Philip saw with his own eyes the Lord Jesus heal the nobleman's son. Philip was present and accounted for beside the pool of Bethesda when he saw the Lord Jesus miraculously heal that lame man. And now Philip is still with the Lord Jesus. He has seen the signs and now Christ intends to test him. He tends to prove him. Has Philip understood what these signs are all about? Has Philip taken it to heart? Does Philip grasp what these signs reveal? These aren't mere tricks. These aren't merely to impress people. These aren't merely for man's benefit. These these signs are streamlined with an intentional purpose to reveal the glory of Christ. Does Philip get it? That's the purpose of the test. And how does the Lord Jesus test Philip? He tests him with a very simple question. It's found right there at the latter half of verse 5. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Philip is faced with a a daunting situation. Here we have 5,000 men plus women and children. So maybe 10,000 people. I don't know. It's, It's huge. Massive number of people. And there's Philip standing thinking, yeah, these these people, they're probably hungry. And then to his absolute shock and his absolute dismay, the Lord Jesus turns to him, to Philip, points him out, numbers him out from among the disciples and everyone else and asks him, point blank, blank, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? That's how he tests him. Philip, you've seen me turn water into wine. Philip, you've seen me heal the sick. Philip, you've seen me heal a lame man. Philip, do you get it? Has it entered past your brain, your cerebral matter, and has it penetrated down into the inner recesses of your soul and grasped your heart, whereby you behold my glory? Here we are, Philip, faced with another daunting situation. Terrible circumstances. All of these hungry people. Do you trust me, Philip? Do you believe in me, Philip? Have you taken to heart the significance of the signs? Have you taken to heart the fact that these signs reveal my power and my wisdom? Have you taken to heart the fact that these signs declare my greatness and my goodness? Philip, do you believe me. That's how he tests him. Now, from that, 
I trust, I trust with your, you're getting a mental image here, a mental picture in your minds of this, of this situation as it unfolds. From that, I want to submit to you this morning that we can take three truths, three doctrines, three lessons, call them what you want, three principles from this statement, from this verse, from this event. And let me impress upon you this morning the importance of these truths. Oh, brothers and sisters, Get a hold of these truths and never let them go. They will serve you well in life. The first truth is this. Are you ready? God tests us. Now, you may not want to hear that. You may not like that. But Scripture makes it abundantly, painfully at times, clear. God Tests us. Now, what do we mean by that? We need to be very careful here, very careful. Bear with me as I seek to explain it and back it up a little bit. In the New Testament, there's a Greek word used over and over again, pyrasmos. Don't write that down. It's not important. The important thing is this. That Greek term refers to two types, is used to describe two types of temptation. Are you with me so far? There is temptation that arises from without. Temptation that arises from our circumstances. And there is temptation, there are temptations that arise from within. They arise out of our fallen, sinful human nature. When we say God tests us, when we say God tempts us, what are we talking about? We are referring to the first, are we not? God tempts us. God tests us from without. But God never tempts us from within. James makes that abundantly clear. He declares, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. When we are tempted to lust, when we are tempted to lie, tempted to steal, tempted to do this, that, or the next thing, all of these sins arising out of what we are by nature, sinners by nature, that God is not responsible for that temptation. That temptation is our responsibility alone. When we say God tempts us or God tests us, is a better expression. We are referring to those things that God purposefully brings into our lives in order to prove us, in order to test us. Let me insert a thought here. When we talk about the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ, what do we mean? The Lord Jesus was tempted. He was tempted from without. He was never, ever tempted from within. He had and has no fallen, sinful human nature. His human nature was perfect by consequence of the the virgin birth. And so when we read that the Lord Jesus was tempted, we mean that God himself tested the Lord Jesus through the instrumentality of Satan. And so, too, when it comes to us, God is not the source of evil. God is not responsible for our temptations that arise from within us. 
But God does most certainly tempt us from without. He most certainly tests us. How? How? In many and diverse ways, let me suggest three to you. And take these to heart. Take note of these. The first is as follows. God tests us by presenting challenges that test our faith. That's Philip's experience. Philip faces a challenge that tests his faith. The challenge is a hungry multitude. The challenge is the Lord Jesus turning to Philip and saying, how are we going to feed these people? This is a daunting challenge, an overwhelming challenge, and it is designed to test his faith And God tests us in precisely the same fashion. The Lord Jesus, God brings things into our lives which which challenge us. An, an An unsaved neighbor, an unsaved family member. Someone who's in in dire material need, a broken relationship, a broken marriage. These things come into our lives and more often than not, when we face these challenges, our response is what? It's hopeless. It's impossible. But you see, they come with a design. They come with a purpose. And the purpose is to test our faith. In spite of the overwhelming nature of the challenge, do we trust God? Do we believe in Him? Secondly, God tests us by issuing commands that test our faith. We have a great example of that in the case of Abraham. God tells Abraham to go, to leave the land of Ur. And initially, God doesn't tell him where to go. Abraham had no idea where, and yet he trusted God. Later in life, God tested Abraham by by telling him he was going to have a physical son, a physical descendant, and that he would be the father of of a multitude of nations as numerous as the stars in the heavens above. And yet God didn't explain how. He didn't give any details at all. And then a little later, once he gave that son to Abraham, Isaac, God tested Abraham again by telling him to offer Isaac, to sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering without ever explaining why. Told him to go, but gave him no clue where. Told him that he would be the father of a multitude of nations, but gave him no indication as to how. Told him to sacrifice his own son without any explanation as to why. And all of this was designed to test Abraham's faith. And God tests us in precisely the same way. He gives us commands that at times appear to be daunting, doesn't he? He commands some to go halfway around the world to Russia. He commands others to go to Mexico. He commands others to leave Peterborough, Ontario, travel halfway across the continent of North America to Glen Rose, Texas. He gives us commands. He he calls us and requires us to make sacrifices. And at times, he, he, he doesn't explain why. At times, he doesn't give all the details. More often than not, his commandment is simple, it is straightforward, and attached to it, written above it, is simply this. You are to trust me. You are to believe me. 
And despite how difficult the command may appear, despite how inexplicable the command might appear to be, your confidence is to rest in me, my infinite power and wisdom. And thirdly, God tests us by governing circumstances that test our faith. Listen to the following examples from Scripture. Perhaps you empathize with some of these. Abraham faced numerous, numerous testings of this nature. He faces a difficult journey, a rebellious nephew, a wandering existence in a hostile environment. Joseph faces a lost childhood, a forced servitude, a lonely existence, a wrongful imprisonment in a godless environment. Moses faces an odd childhood, a decadent society, a hostile people, an isolated existence, and a resentful people. Naomi faces a terrible famine, a foreign land, a premature death, her husband and her sons, and a fading hope. David faces a resentful brother, a psychotic king, an outlawed existence, a divided home, a rebellious son, and a passionate nature. Daniel faces a lost childhood, a destroyed homeland, a strange land, an oppressive environment, a slanderous accusation, and an arrogant king. Do you see yourself anywhere in there? Each and every one of those circumstances brought by the sovereign hand of God into the life of each and every one of those individuals. Why? Because God had a purpose to test their faith, to prove their faith, to stir it, to strengthen it, so that they might rest completely and entirely in Him. That's the first truth I want us to take away this morning. God tests us. The second is this. God tests us for our good and for His glory. Again, we see it in the case of Philip. It was for his good. How was it for his good? I've already answered that question. It was for his good in that he cultivated his faith. Yes, Philip had seen the signs. Philip had even been present when the Lord Jesus called Nathanael and said to Nathanael, Before I called you, I saw you beneath the fig tree. Philip was there. Philip heard that. Philip has seen divine wisdom Philip has seen divine power, but his faith has to be nurtured. His faith has to be cultivated. And so the test is designed to do precisely that. And in doing so, it is ultimately for Philip's good. And not only is it for Philip's good, but it is for God's glory. Because in trusting in God, in trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, in acknowledging the Lord Jesus Christ to be precisely who he claimed to be, Philip was declaring what? The greatness and the goodness of God. Mike read it for us earlier. Let me repeat just a couple of verses from 1 Peter chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we trust God in the face of discouraging challenges, daunting commands, and devastating circumstances, we declare His glory. We declare His glory. Trust is the highest form of flattery. And when we trust in God, despite our circumstances, despite what He requires of us that seems so unreasonable and impossible, despite the challenges He brings our way, when we trust in Him, although everything else is declaring contrary, when we trust in Him, we declare His glory because we are declaring that He is all-powerful, He is all-wise, He is great, and He is good. And that there is nothing that comes our way that can shake that certainty, that can shake that foundation. You think again of the example of Abraham. We have a a verse tucked away in Romans chapter 4 that troubled me for years. A statement. The statement is this. Romans chapter 4 verse 18 in reference to Abraham. Listen carefully to these words. In hope, Abraham believed against hope. Just let that sink in. That sounds like gibberish. In hope. Abraham believed against hope. In hope against hope, Abraham believed. Well, which is it? Is it in hope or is it against hope? It's both. When God made that promise concerning a son, Abraham believed against hope. Meaning Abraham was a realist. Abraham took a look around at his circumstance. He says, I'm an old man. Sarah's not as young as she used to be. We are well beyond childbearing age. And yet he believed against hope. He believed contrary to what his circumstances screamed at him. Because he believed in hope. You see, in addition to looking at his circumstances and taking taking stock of the reality of his situation... He also contemplated his God. And he remembered who it was who made the promise. And he dwelt upon El Shaddai, God Almighty. He dwelt upon God's power, God's wisdom, God's goodness. And Abraham believed in hope against hope. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, commenting on that very verse, the one thing that mattered with Abraham was that God had spoken, that God had made a promise. And because it was God who had spoken, and because it was God who had made the promise, Abraham says nothing else needs to be considered. What a wonderful way this is of looking at faith and defining faith. Faith is that which always glorifies God. Faith is to believe God simply and solely because He is God. Nothing glorifies God more than this. Nothing glorifies God more than faith. God tests us. God tests us for for our good and for His glory. 
And the third truth I want to leave with you this morning is as follows. God tests us always knowing what he will do. Always knowing what he will do. You see that in the case of Philip back in John chapter 6. It's right there in verse 6. He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Now that is a truth. That is a truth that has come under fire, terrible fire in recent years. There is a movement. I don't want to bore you with this, but it is, ex- is extremely important because it is a movement that is growing. It is referred to as open theism. And according to open theism, God is open to the future. And God is open to the future because God does not know the future. God is omniscient. He knows all things at present. He knows all things in the past. But God cannot know the future because the future is contingent upon human decisions. And human decisions aren't made until the moment at which they are made. And therefore, God does not know the future. And there's a number of philosophical arguments that, that some so-called theologians employ to buttress that, that, their argument. And they even make some biblical arguments. They, they will appeal to Genesis 22 to defend their position. And they will say, look, what's happening in Genesis 22 is this. God tests Abraham. But you see, the purpose of the test isn't for Abraham's benefit. The purpose of the test is for God's benefit. God wants to know where Abraham stands. God wants to know what Abraham is thinking. God wants to know whether Abraham will trust him. And so God designs this test. Abraham passes the test. And now God learns that, yes, indeed, Abraham believes in him. Abraham trusts him. Abraham fears him. And they will, they will, they will actually go so far as to say that this kind of divine learning experience happens throughout Scripture. Nothing can be further from the truth. What is going on in Genesis 22 isn't, isn't a divine learning experience. The, the design of the test isn't for God's benefit. The design of the test is for Abraham's benefit. Here in John chapter 6, the design of the test isn't for Christ's benefit. Christ isn't looking for information. Christ isn't looking for some help. Look, boys, I'm a little overwhelmed here. I really don't know what to do. Philip, any ideas? Any suggestions? No, what we have here, let me reintroduce that Greek term pyrasmos. What we have here, and we find it repeatedly throughout Scripture, is an instance of pyrastic irony. Pyrastic irony. Where God himself uses a test, a test which appears to be heading in one direction. But all the while, God knows exactly what he's going to do. And all the while, God knows most certainly what the individual involved is going to do. God tests us, always knowing what he will do. For from him and through him and to him are all things, says the Apostle Paul. In times of testing, I don't know about you, but in times of testing, I can think of no more comforting doctrine than this. That God knows what he is doing. And God knows what he will do. And his plan is unfailing. His plan is unwavering. And his plan is unchanging.
the extent, the extent to which we grasp that, the extent to which we take that to heart will determine how we respond, how we persevere, how we act in times of testing. You consider with me two examples from the Old Testament and listen carefully to these examples. The first is of Jacob. Talk about a man who was tested, forced to flee from his father's home because his brother Esau hated him. He was humiliated in his uncle Laban's home. He was cheated of the woman he loved. He was deceived into marrying another woman. He was forced to flee from his uncle's home because his cousins resented him. He was grieved by the death of his wife Rachel in childbirth. He was grieved at the rape of his daughter Dinah. He was troubled by the murderous ways of his sons Simeon and Levi. He was troubled by the licentious ways of his son Judah, who fathered a child by his own daughter-in-law. He was robbed of his beloved son Joseph. His attitude in the midst of these circumstances is summed up in his cry, Genesis 42:36. All these things are against me. All these things are against me. Now you compare that with Joseph. Joseph was hated by all his brothers, stripped of his clothes, and tossed into a pit like an animal. He was ignored as he pleaded with his brothers to help him. He was treated as a mere slave. He was transported to a foreign country. He didn't know the language or the culture. He was separated from all that was familiar to him. He was sold as a piece of merchandise into the house of Potiphar. He was hounded by a licentious woman, bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. In the words of Proverbs 5, 4, He was wrongly accused. He was wrongly imprisoned. His attitude in the midst of these circumstances is summed up in his cry, Genesis 50, verse 20. God meant it for good. Oh, talk about a stark contrast. You have Jacob over here. All these things are against me. Woe is me. And you have Joseph over here. God meant it for good. I will publicly confess more often than I care to admit I find myself over here with Jacob. All these things are against me. And what makes the difference in perspective? What makes the difference in in, a, in, a, in approach, in our reaction, in our response, is our heartfelt grasp of this truth. God tests us, always knowing what He will do. That does not mean we're blind stoics. Stiff upper lip, old man, just take it and suck it up. We are not stoics. We do not go through life without any emotion, just accepting whatever circumstances and challenges and tests are set before us. They cause grief. The pain is real. The grief is real. The suffering is real. But in the midst of it, 
we can echo the cry of Joseph. God meant it for good. That his hand is all over it. His fingerprints all over those challenges and circumstances, those testings that arise. And we have this great certainty that we can take to heart that he tests us, always knowing what he will do. Let me leave you with three additional truths this morning, just as we wrap up three, just very briefly. We, we, we've touched on them, but let me just draw them out a little further. The first is the, as, as follows. The object of faith is God. The object of faith is God. That may sound like I'm stating the obvious to you. It's because I am stating the obvious. At times we need to be reminded of the obvious. Far too often, our gaze is fixed on our circumstances, the times of testing, is it not? Far too often, we're like Peter. Peter, as he gets out of the boat, and as he begins to walk on the waters to the Lord Jesus Christ, as long as his gaze is on Christ, all is well with Peter. But the moment Peter takes his eyes off of Christ, he begins to sink. He begins to look back and count the meters or yards or whatever between him and the boat. Oh, I'm getting a little further away from the boat than, I, than, I, than I'd like. He begins to look up and he hears the wind howling all around him. He begins to look around and sees these waves. He begins to look beneath him and the fathoms that lay just below his feet. And the moment he removes his gaze from Christ, he sunk. He's done for. So it is in our experience, is it not? The moment the eye of faith is removed from our God, from our Lord Jesus Christ, we begin to sink and are overwhelmed by our circumstances. Remember this. This is the test. This is what Christ is seeking to draw out of Philip. The object of faith, no matter what is going on around us, the object of faith is God. The second truth is this. The strength of faith is the knowledge of God. In other words, there's a direct correlation between knowledge of God and faith in God. We can't and we won't trust what we don't know. It is only as we grow, increase in our knowledge of God, who He is in the fullness of His glory, that faith follows suit. Faith steps in line and trusts in this great God. And how we must strive, how we must strive to make certain that our theology, how we must strive to make sure all of that doctrine that we cram into our heads doesn't remain there but sinks down by the Holy Spirit and touches our hearts. So that, yes, I believe God is eternal, immortal, invisible. And I live like I believe it. And it actually affects my, my life. And when, and when these testings come, whatever the nature of the testing, whether it be Philip's experience or Abraham's experience or Job's experience or, or Ruth's experience, whatever the nature of the testing, that knowledge of God has taken root, has planted a seed. The seed has sprung forth and has cultivated that unwavering faith in God and in God alone. And the third lesson is this. The result of faith 
is the glory of God. God glorifies himself through the simple fact that his goodness and greatness compel us to trust him. Again, in the words of Lloyd-Jones, faith is to believe God simply and solely because he is God. Nothing glorifies God more than this.